And we are back on Moving Forward with Young Voices here on the Fed by Ravens Media Network. Happy to welcome Alexander Salter back to the show. He's an economics professor at Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University. He's also a senior contributor to Young Voices. And uh, great to catch up with you, Alexander. Likewise, Brian. Very excited to talk with you. I probably left a few things off of uh, off of your resume. I know you are a, a busy guy. You're one of my sources that I follow on Twitter because I think you have a really well-informed take. What else, anything else you're doing that uh, that you'd want our audience to know about? I'm working on a lot of topics right now. I actually cut my teeth as a macroeconomist and monetary economist. And uh, as it turns out, there is a topic related to that in the news. Everybody wants to know about inflation. Is it permanent? Is it transitory? Where is it coming from? So on the one hand, I like the fact that my expertise is in demand. On the other hand, this really confirms the maxim that you don't really want to live at a time when it's an exciting to be a macroeconomist. That usually means that something somewhere has gone wrong. Uh, that's, a, that's a good rule of thumb. I think I'm going to write that one down. I know I'm looking, May you live in interesting times. Oh, and we're there. Yeah, we're smack in the middle of them. I'm, now, I'm looking at a Wall Street Journal article that you wrote about um, a space treaty to stop the sky from falling. And I, this was just on the periphery of my awareness uh, like a week or two ago, but um, there was a, a Russian... Uh, was there a Russian anti-satellite test or a Russian satellite that came down in pieces? Did I, I only, I, again, this is just on the edge of my periphery, but what's going on up above us that has people concerned about uh, the sky falling? Yeah, you got the long and short of it. A week ago Monday, not this Monday, but the previous one, Russia shot down one of their old satellites that was in low Earth orbit and created a bunch of debris. According to U.S. Space Command, it created about 1,500 pieces of debris that's large enough to be tracked. But the really concerning stuff is the estimated hundreds of thousands of pieces that are too small to track. Now, objects in the orbit, including debris, move really, really fast in excess of 17,000 miles per hour. So even pieces that are too small to track can still really ruin your day if they collide with a satellite or, God forbid, the International Space Station while there are astronauts aboard. Okay, I could I could see that being a hazard. Now, I remember as a kid going out, and when you could see a satellite crossing the sky, that was a big deal. You know, oh, look, that star. No, it's a satellite. You know, you felt like you'd really seen something. You know, maybe just a step or two below a UFO. Nowadays, though, there are so many satellites, and, you know, Elon Musk is putting even more up there with the Starlink and, and what have you. How do they keep track of all of, uh, all of that, all of the objects in space and, and prevent, uh, you know, either accidental or on purpose uh, collisions. Great place to start. So understandably, people are worried about orbits getting particularly crowded. As you said, there are going to be a bunch more commercial satellite, satellites as part of uh, mega constellations, especially for satellite Internet in the coming years. I think that Starlink has already put up around 10,000. In addition to the useful stuff, there's the debris, the stuff that's in orbit that no longer serves a useful purpose, but again, can still make things go pretty bad pretty quick if there's a collision. Various agencies, both private and public, maintain lists and registrations 
registry of space objects, communication satellites, pieces of debris that we can track. And so the idea is that if we can track it, we can use orbital, orbital mechanics to have some idea of where it's going to be. Uh, sometimes we get a heads up about a possible conjunction, basically means a collision risk with something like the International Space Station. And a lot of times, satellites and the International Space Station and other similar things that are up there can be moved to get out of the way to avoid the worst of it. But again, the really scary thing is there's just so much junk up there right now that there's plenty of pieces smaller than a marble, so small that there's just no good way to track it, that if it hits you, that could cause the cascading series of collisions, which causes more debris, which causes more collisions, and then the whole thing spirals out of control very quickly. So what's what's the gist of the the uh, space treaty that that seeks to avoid you know those kinds of outcomes? Right. So the foundation of space law is the 1967 Outer Space Treaty signed by all the spacefaring nations. I think it has currently 111 total signatory nations at this point. And one of the things that treaty says is that nations retain jurisdiction over the objects that they put in space. You can't extend a government's jurisdiction into space, so you can't plant the U.S. flag on the moon and say this is now U.S. territory. That's a no-no. But the objects that your nation puts in space are still under your nation's jurisdiction. What that means is Russia has the right to shoot down its own satellites if it wants to. We have the right to shoot down our own satellites if we want to. We did it back in 1985. Uh, India did an anti-satellite test in 2019. China did a big one in 2007. So as long as we're destroying our own assets, there's no legal claim that any of these other nations have against us. The problem with that is it's contributing to an environment where orbit is getting so cluttered that we're starting to work that it's going to just get too difficult to operate there unless something is done to change the legal incentives. Interesting. Yeah, I, I you know, when what you had mentioned in your article about, uh, okay, so Russia showed they could shoot down this satellite, but there are some perhaps some unintended consequences for um, other nations, you know, assets there in space just because of the debris. Is, is this something that's been seen before? Have we seen inadvertent uh, space debris causing, you know, the disabling or destruction of uh, assets that didn't belong to the nation to whom the debris belongs? There have certainly been collisions. Uh, famously, about a decade ago, a communication satellite from the Iridium network collided with a defunct Russian military satellite, I believe. And so that caused some communications problems for a while. There haven't been any catastrophic incidents. Uh, debris has never deorbited and hurt anybody here on Earth. There have been no uh, astronaut fatalities associated with space debris. But just because the thing hasn't happened bad in the past doesn't mean it's going to continue to be okay in the future. This is really one of those things that we want to get a handle on while we still have the ability to do so, precisely because if you plot debris over time, it's one of those things that takes off suddenly and very unexpectedly. Space scientists call the positive feedback loop that I referred to a minute ago Kessler syndrome. Collisions create debris, create more collisions, create more debris. If that happens too fast, faster than our ability to mitigate and remove debris, you could envision a scenario where operating in orbit is pretty much unfeasible. And given how much of our daily lives we now take for granted depend on communication satellite networks, that's really, really something we don't want to even risk happening. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound like, hey, this is all about my self-interest, but I, I signed up for Starlink satellite earlier this year, um, you know, for satellite Internet from uh, Elon Musk's Starlink system. I love it. I mean, I, I live in a pretty rural area, and it gives me very fast, very dependable, um, you know, Internet. 
but uh, I, w- I would hate to think that there are things that pose a risk to this. Um, at, who, who enforces these treaties? What, in what ways can they be made to stick or to, to have c- accountability for, for nations that, uh, for whatever reason, may run afoul of them? That's one of the most difficult things. All of this comes from international treaty. And nations can't be bound by international treaty except by their own consent. So really, it has to be something to which all nations agree to. Now, there are provisions in other treaties that have been signed since about how nations can sue each other under specific conditions if one nation's action uh, causes an accident in space. That creates debris, and then that debris can be definitively shown to damage another nation's space assets. There are ways to deal with that in international courts, according to the international legal system, but at this point, it's more of a curiosity or a theoretical point than anything. It's not really seen as something that has enough teeth to make sure that we stop treating orbit like a junkyard. Okay, and and this is going to sound a little a little on the conspiracy side, but we don't hear much about uh, control of space, whether it's orbital space or outer space beyond the beyond the Earth's you know orbit. Uh, is there is there a lot more activity taking place there, and a lot more uh, jockeying for position on the part of uh, spacefaring nations than than what we hear about? There is certainly some of that going on. I was at a space conference a couple of years ago where one of the presenters, who was an expert in space law and policy and also had a national security background, was talking about the total figures of satellites that are up there, pieces of debris that are up there. And as sort of an offhand comment, he said, of course, those figures are probably exaggerated because a lot of the stuff that's up there are things that we don't want other nations knowing about. And other nations have their own stuff up there that they don't want us knowing about. So there almost certainly is some top secret material. There's almost certainly some asset up there not just ours, but other nations as well, that just is not in terms of uh, not in general circulation in terms of the information that the public has. That's just the nature of the critter. That's nations doing what nations do in terms of geopolitics. That's probably not going to be an obstacle to securing a serious reform for efforts of securing orbital integrity. If we don't get a deal among the major spacefaring nations, I don't think that it'll be that reason why. Okay, for people who want to follow up on this and and need a good source of information, what are some of the resources you might point them toward? I've written numerous articles on space debris in recent years. I published them in outlets as diverse as National Review and the Aerospace Tech Review, right, sort of general interest publications and uh, more in-house slash trade publications. You can find all of my public writings at my website, www.awsalter.com. Of course, uh, as you would expect, NASA has some pretty good information about orbital debris. They even have a orbital debris tracker page. They put out a quarterly report on the state of various orbits, including low Earth orbit. So I would encourage readers to go take a look at that, especially uh, all the nice graphics they have on, on debris over time. That can be really illustrative. Okay, we've been visiting with Alexander Salter. He's an economics professor at the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University and a senior contributor to Young Voices. Have a happy Thanksgiving, Alexander. Happy Thanksgiving, Brian. Thank you.